Welcome to Piano Inspires podcast, celebrating pianists, teachers, and innovators as they share their inspiring stories about the transformative power of music. I'm Sarah Ernst, uh, and I'm so pleased to be joined with today's guest, Marvin Blickenstaff. Marvin Blickenstaff is such a well-known piano teacher who's had a long career, over 60 years yeah. in piano teaching, <laughs> uh, including currently at the New School for Music, yeah. Music Study, formerly at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and Goshen College, among many others. Uh, he has been awarded a fellow of the Royal Conservatory of Music, in addition to the MTNA Achievement Award. Uh, it is an honor and a delight to be here with Mark. My pleasure. My pleasure. So we're going to start with background a bit. Okay. So would you share a formative experience from your youth regarding Gladly. the piano? Gladly. I tell this story frequently. Um, <clears throat> I have two older brothers, and they took piano lessons when they were in grade school, but they quit when they were in the seventh grade because they got very busy with athletics. So I followed in their footsteps, took uh, lessons during grade school, did quite well. Um, piano seemed easy for me. I could read. I uh, was quite a facile sight reader, and my fingers flew uh, across the keys. But I got to the seventh grade, and I announced to my mother that it was time for me to quit lessons. And she said, what? You got such a good start. Why would you want to quit lessons? And I said, well, Lauren and Wayne quit when they were in the seventh grade. Isn't that what Blickenstaff boys do? We quit lessons in the seventh grade. She said, no, you got too good a start. I said, but I'm bored. And she thought a little bit, and she said, I think I know how to fix that. I said, I'll call Fern. Fern Davidson was the best teacher in our town, small town in Idaho. But not only that, she was probably the best teacher in the whole state of Idaho and one of the preeminent teachers in the Pacific Northwest. And there she was, right in our little town of Nampa, Idaho. I could ride my bicycle to my lessons with Fern. And so the mother made arrangements with Fern, and Fern said, yeah, I know about Marvin. She said, I will, I will make arrangements for him in my studio. But I still was a little bit undecided about whether or not I wanted to continue on with lessons. So I went for a few lessons with Fern, and by about the end of the third lesson, I would have signed a contract with God Almighty that I was going to be a pianist mm -hmm. and that I was going to stay with piano. Those lessons were challenging. They were exciting. The repertoire was wonderful. Fern was both encouraging, but she had very high standards, and it was not easy for me to actually achieve those standards. She raised the bar, and I've never looked back. I've never looked back. It's interesting. I think a lot of people make decisions in life, and it's temporary, and they say, oh, I wish I hadn't gone in that direction. I have never, never been sorry that I chose to stay with the piano. Obviously, when I was in the seventh grade, I had no idea that my professional activity would be in the area of piano pedagogy. You know, uh, at that point, you just play the piano. 
and and uh, as life turned out, you know, I became a piano major in both undergraduate and graduate work, and and then found college teaching positions, and it was very, it's kind of a, 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 a turn of fate that every college teaching position that I got always had a component of piano pedagogy in it. So I only had one piano pedagogy course in my life. It was a required course as a senior piano major at, at Oberlin. And we were all, all piano majors were required to take that course. I'm not sure how much I learned, although it was interesting that the pedagogy teacher came to class one day and she said, now I have some new books that I want to introduce to you. These are just hot off the press and I think we've got to look at it. And that was Francis Clark's Time to Begin. So I, yeah, I got in on the ground level of the Time to Begin and that whole movement in pedagogy. Um, so tell, and, yeah, tell me about your first experience teaching. Well, that's interesting. I'm glad you asked that because... I was not very fond of the of the activities that we had to do, the assignments that we had in that one required piano pedagogy course. But the one thing that really turned me on about that course is that we had to teach. And so the pedagogy teacher found young students for us. I happened to teach the son of the oboe teacher, uh, oboe instructor uh, at o Oberlin, and we just had a great time. I loved introducing him to the concepts of, of, of reading and, and, and rhythm, et cetera, et cetera. That was great. And I thought, wow, if teaching is this much fun, you know. <laughs> so teaching was a lot different than pedagogy. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yeah. No, I, I really enjoy teaching. And I've, I've never lost that joy in my whole life. I've taught for over 60 years. I've taught for over 60 years, and I can't believe that every afternoon when the first student walks in the door, I get turned on by the act of sharing music with a student. And I, I thank my blessings that that remains with me because, I mean, I'm an old man, and I would have long since given up teaching if it had not been so fulfilling and exciting for me. But uh, I, I hope I never lose that. Teaching is fun. Teaching is inspiring. Teaching, well, don't you think, Sarah, that there's something in life about sharing, sharing valuable experiences that makes life worthwhile. Mm -hmm. And that's why I teach. I'm sharing with my young students the values of making music. And expressing ourselves through sound. Now that was a long, uh, long answer well, to your question. It, a lovely answer. I want to go back to one other aspect of your yeah. childhood. Tell me about your piano and your home. What was that like as a child? Good question. I could almost cry when I start to describe our family because we had a wonderful family. I'm the youngest of three boys. My dad was a dentist. My mother was a beautiful human being who loved her family and took care of us in an unbelievable fashion. Um, there was love in the home. My parents loved each other. Uh, uh, the, the, we got along. The, it, it was just a great environment. 
we had an upright piano. My mother played the piano. My two older brothers took lessons during high school, during during grade school, and so it was very natural that that I would I would play the piano, uh, and I I just couldn't wait until my mother enrolled me in piano lessons. Um, so piano was part of the, the the scene, and I stayed on that old upright piano until I was in high school and was playing concertos with orchestra and stuff, still practicing on an upright. I had a cousin on my father's side of the family who ran a piano store in Boise, the town next door, the capital city. And he said, you know, and he talked to my dad, he said, you know, Marvin really deserves to have a grand piano. And he was the Baldwin dealer in Boise. And so my parents, when I was in high school, my parents bought a Baldwin grand, which I, they shipped around with me uh, in, in some of my early college teaching positions uh, and I, until I got my Steinway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. now I remember that you had some experience in Fern Studios, like a monster concert possibly, or like a master class series. I wonder if you'd want to share one of those kind of formative yeah. high school experiences. Yeah. Fern, uh, my, my high school teacher, she thought it was really important for people to get together and play the piano. She was a little bit <laughs> like Elsa Stema on a, on a Nampa high school <laughs> or a Nampa, Nampa Idaho uh, level. She got all of the local teachers together to play ensemble. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so they would rehearse. She would pick out the ensemble music. A lot of times it was just duets or two piano music, and, and they would play it on eight pianos and stuff. Uh, and um, she would get the uh, teachers together, and they would rehearse this music that she had selected in a, in a local music store where there were lots of pianos that they could use. And then once a year, they got together and they gave a formal concert that they billed as the Idaho Eight Piano Symphony. And Fern would stand on a podium and, and conduct. And, and the pianos, the grand pianos, a lot of the teachers would donate their grand pianos for this event. And the grand pianos were arranged in a horseshoe shape and, and, and they would play this music. Well, some of us younger kids, some of us kids who were more advanced would join in, and at, at certain uh, on certain numbers, we would be a part of that. And so instead of just one teacher at a piano, it would be a teacher and a student. Fern knew about one piece arranged by uh, Percy Granger, Australian composer and, and, and arranger, uh, arranged for eight pianos, 16 players. Wow. That's a lot of it pianists. Just, can you imagine the sound? <laughs> right. It's, it's amazing. Uh, and it was the overture to the Rossini opera Semiramide. Uh, and it sounded terrific. I mean, can you imagine? 16 players at 18 pianos. And all the parts were a little bit different, you know. And so it was not just duplicating one part. Um, and so a lot of us students were, would, could join in on that. Yeah. And that was... That was the, a monster concert at its best. And uh, there would be advertisement about this Idaho 8 Piano Symphony and announcing the concert. And uh, the, 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 the people in, in town would pack out the auditorium. And it was really quite an event. Fern would conduct every number. Uh, uh, sometimes she would select an outstanding person in the, in, in the area to play a concerto. 
and a couple of the teachers would uh, provide the orchestral background for them. But those were wonderful memories. I mean, that's Idaho music at its best. <laughs> so you got an undergraduate degree from Oberlin. Yes. And yes. then a master's degree from Indiana. Indiana, that's right. So what were some of your formative experiences or teachers during those stages? Or even and then you went to New York City, right, after that? Um, um, I think in, in both situations, I had never been around so many fine student pianists. And so the, the environment was stimulating because everybody was playing so well. And the teachers would have performance classes and things like that. Uh, but it was a, a, an environment where you were stimulated by your peers and, and by the, the, uh, what, what was going on around you. And then, of course, I mean, concerts and concerts and concerts. At Oberlin, every Wednesday afternoon, there was a, a concert put on by, by student performers where we'd play just one piece, you know, but uh, uh, wonderful performances. And, and not just piano, of course. Yeah. And uh, at Indiana University, with all, with all the doctoral and master degree recitals, you know, there was just so much music. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was an environment of, of musical performance that I'd never experienced before. Mm -hmm. And that was truly stimulating. I would imagine you would feel similarly about your time abroad, that it was a st kind of stimulating environment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, uh, although... <clears throat> When you say my, my time abroad, I, I studied in Frankfurt, Germany for a year, uh, but I was commuting into school and, and there were not a lot of student performances. There were some faculty performances that, that were good. Uh, but the main thing about studying abroad were the public concerts that you could hear. And we heard major artists coming, coming through, and that was wonderful. Yeah. You know, it strikes me, so at the New School for Music Study, you have kind of nurtured the program that they refer to as PEPS, yeah. right, which stands for the Program for Excellence in Piano Study. That's, you right? got it right, yeah. Uh, and it strikes me that a lot of what, at least I've heard that you do with that program, draws in a lot of the things that you were talking about, making sure students have a community, that they're working in together, that they're hearing each other play. So I might wonder if you would share some about that program and how you have nurtured that environment. Um, Francis, and Louis, Francis Clark and Louise Goss, the founders of the New School for Music Study, believed strongly that effective music study involved effective private lessons and also the opportunity for students to play in a group. And so the curriculum at the New School involves weekly private lessons and bi-monthly bi uh, uh, repertoire classes. And that persists to this day. And it really is an effective educational format because students study and students perform. And we learn through both avenues, study and performance. Um, at one point, Louise took me aside and said, there's something missing a little bit, said, uh, and it is that we don't have a program that is particularly stimulating to our most outstanding students. 
I would like to have you think about that. And so together we devised a, a program where we would select our most advanced students. And I had the, the great privilege of directing those classes for, for a number of years. And it was a responsibility to think up a curriculum and I would do a number of different projects. Uh, but we would do performance practices and we would do historical stuff and we would do technical uh, uh, investigations and things like that. Uh, but the, the focus was on performing, finding out how we can improve our performances and, uh, uh, and investigating the repertoire, learning more about composers. Uh, actually, um, it was sort of a mini performance practices uh, uh, program at, at, the, at the new school. Um, and that, that program persists now under the direction of Dr. Charles Lowe, who's doing a fabulous job uh, directing that. Uh, he's a very creative teacher and has great projects for, for the kids. Um, but I think it's important for all of us teachers to keep sort of raising the bar for our students. What, what would be even more challenging or what, what would open up the student's mind and having them learn in, in uh, different avenues and, and, and different uh, uh, subjects uh, uh, in, our, in our piano study. And so that goes on. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I had uh, a role to play in that development of, of the program at, at the new school. And I hear from former students that they really remember some of those projects and they remember the stimulation of the PEPS program. I, I think the, basically the, 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 the secret of success of the PEPS program is that it takes students who are sort of playing at a high level and letting them uh, interact with students who are also uh, yeah. playing at that, at that level. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that, that peer group and then hearing yeah. other students who yeah. are also playing advanced literature. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that gives us opportunity to really talk about a great variety of repertoire. Mm -hmm. You're not limited to sonatinas. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you've been teaching for, you said, over 60 years. I've been teaching for over 60 years. Yeah, so, so what do you find to be the most invigorating aspect or even the most challenging aspect of teaching that kind of really, you know, that you find yourself, because you said you're still drawn to it. And you Thank still, you for asking yes. that question. Thank you for asking that question. I think the bottom line of successful teaching and the thing that is challenging for every teacher is to turn the students on to the sensitivity of expression through sound. Mm -hmm. Music, I think the bottom line of musical expression is how we shape sound. And if I do not make some headway in every lesson that I teach, bringing the student closer to a more effective way to shape sound and express feeling through sound, that's not been a very good lesson. Mm. That is the goal of every lesson. Mm -hmm. So that's my challenge, and it goes on to 60 years, and maybe 65 <laughs> years, I don't know. One of these days I'll, I'll hang up <laughs> the, the sign and say, I quit. Uh, you know, I can't, I can't quite imagine that. 
I can't imagine no, I can't telling either. myself that it's time for me to quit. Because every afternoon that it's time for a student to come, I, I, I get a little excited. I say, what can we accomplish mm -hmm. today? Yeah. I can't, yeah. Yeah, no, and I, I find it to be interesting on how different students will, you'll be able to unlock that through different repertoire. Yeah, yeah. You know, for some students, they'll really latch onto something, and that's yeah. where you'll be able to find that expression yeah. in them. Yeah, I, um, you know about everything there is to know about my teaching, but I find, I find it very helpful to equip a student with some rules of thumb mm -hmm. that help them shape the sound. Uh, most every student in my studio has a sheet in their in their notebook. That, that uh, is rules of thumb for shaping the sound. Mm -hmm. And we have rules like the last note of a phrase is the quietest, you know. And are, those are really tangible things that really work. And, and if the student uh, abides by those rules, it's, it's kind of interesting. The sound is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they realize, oh, wow. Uh, if I if I make the last note of each phrase the quietest, mm -hmm. and if I take a breath at the end of every phrase, you know, that's that makes a lot of musical sense, and that that is expressive playing. Uh, uh, that every phrase has to have a high point, and so we look for the loudest note in in every phrase. You know, absolutely, that's what music does. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things, if I just reflect a little personally, is that I've felt as I've gotten older and taught more, is that I actually feel even greater responsibility towards each and every student that comes into the studio. And yeah. I wonder if you might talk a bit about that responsibility that we have as yeah. teachers. Yeah. I carry a bit of a cross on my back because sometimes I don't reach that, I, I don't meet that responsibility. Mm. I, <laughs> I, feel, I feel the failure that sometimes I've not really turned a student on to the excitement of learning new repertoire, of, of shaping the sound, you know. And I feel very badly about that. Uh, so... But My teaching thing, is not all a success story. The thing, though, that I find interesting is that we never know the impact we've had. Well, with, that's uh, true. We, right? we yeah. Because some of those students, you know, it will be years later. Yeah. Even. Yeah. That we'll find out about some of the impacts we've yeah. made. You right? know, I I have a, a file that I keep. And it, it, my file is called For a Rainy Day. Okay. <laughs> and you know already what's in that file. Uh -huh. So I get thank you notes from students, I get Christmas cards and things like that. And uh, sometimes a student will write, you'll never know uh, what those lessons meant to me. Mm -hmm. Or you'll never know uh, what our relationship has meant. You were such a good friend or something like that. And, and it makes me realize that I didn't realize at the time the impact that I was having on that student. And it could be personal relationship, but what what pleases me the most when students reflect about what the the music lessons, the, right. yeah, that they are enjoying playing the piano mm -hmm. because of our lessons. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. You never quite know what that impact is. 
one of the other remarkable things about your career. <laughs> there are so many, no. <laughs> but one of them is that throughout your 60 years of teaching, you have always worked with all stages and all ages. Oh, well, yes. From the little six-year-old yes, to the high school student to the adult, yeah. right? Yeah. Why? I think one of the most exciting things about life is to witness growth mm -hmm. and to compare where uh, Sarah is this afternoon with where she was two months ago. Yeah, that's exciting. Mm -hmm. What keeps you going? Growth. Seeing growth. growth. Mm -hmm. uh, what is challenging when we reach a plateau and, and we're not moving very right. much, you know. But, uh, no, I... Um, as I have implied, I'm not sure when I'm going to quit teaching. It has to come sometime soon. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the thing that keeps me going is to stimulate the growth of the mm -hmm. students. And the goal is always, it uh, doesn't matter whether uh, it's an uh, advanced adult or our or, or young beginning student, the uh, the goal is always making expressive sound. See, I I think one of the things that turns me on most about teaching children is that there are so many factors in a child's life that are kind of cruel and insensitive. I mean, you turn on the television and you see the most horrible things, you know, and I, I just want to protect... Mm -hmm. All the children in the world from all that crime and 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 violence and stuff like that, and I think, boy, if I could do anything to add sensitivity mm -hmm. to that child's life, I will do that. Yeah, I think children desperately need piano lessons. They uh, d d d children desperately need something in their life that says it is important to engage with beauty it is important to be beautiful mm -hmm. because there's so much in their life that is so crass and cruel and insensitive so i know that you feel strongly then about the impact of the piano teacher yeah yeah oh, oh. right yeah so what is the role <laughs> of the piano teacher in the world the role of the piano teacher in the world is to sensitize a student's life through beautiful sound. End of sentence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is the role of the piano teacher. And every piano teacher who thinks that their role is to score a certain uh, grade in the RCM syllabus series or, or to win a state competition or to uh, get their students to play scales at 144, uh, they're, they're missing the message. The role of a piano teacher is to, is to bring beauty and sensitivity mm -hmm. into child's life because without us, that child may go through life without, that, without opening up their lives mm -hmm. to the beauty. Mm -hmm. What advice, then, do you have for the teacher who might feel trapped in the world of correctness or the world of making sure students 
practice enough or make sure they get all their F sharps and yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you keep that magic central while still ensuring growth and progress and? It's it's not just a one way street. There there are lots of answers to your question. I I I do think that the bottom line is to turn students on to sound. Uh, I think that there are too many piano teachers who teach lesson after lesson after lesson, and they never play for their students. Mm -hmm. Students desperately need to hear the teacher play for several reasons. The student's piano at home is out of tune mm -hmm. and is a very poor instrument and cannot make a beautiful sound. And the students come to their piano lesson, and if the teacher doesn't play for them, uh, their their repertoire, they they are missing that that experience of hearing beautiful sound. So I think teachers really have the obligation to play for their students. So that's that's one of the main things. Uh, and I think the other thing that I would I would say basically is that the teachers must keep at the forefront of their curriculum expressivity. Mm -hmm. It's not technique. It's not necessarily rhythmic drills and things like that. It's not theory sheets. It is expressivity. Uh, and the theory sheets and the technical drills and things all are part of the picture, but they're not the, the, the substance of it. And the real substance of piano instruction, of effective and purposeful piano instruction is producing sensitive sound. And that's that's our goal. Mm -hmm. Did that answer your yeah, question? Yeah, no, that was beautiful. <laughs> that was beautiful. So have you encountered students who are, uh, I don't want to say resistant to that, but who maybe don't have an interest in um, oh, I would have to say yes, although I can't specifically. I, I have encountered students who are not very interested in piano lessons. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. So um, what do you do with that? Well, work on sound. Yeah. Work on sound. And I think, I think one of the things that helps us work on sound is for us to express our response to this. Uh, when I play this piece, I feel like I'm floating on a cloud. Or uh, uh, when, I, uh, when I play this piece, I see sunset over, over a lake in the mountains or something like that. Uh, for us to articulate our response to that sound, and then that opens up an avenue for the student. I don't expect my students to just pop on the bench and say, oh, this is a fabulous piece. It reminds me of such and such. No, they need a lot of coaching. They need a lot of coaching on that. Um, one of the things I try to do also to stimulate that response is to assign students to make up pieces and give, give them expressive titles. Uh, make up a piece uh, uh, in, in which you focus on major thirds and the title of the piece is The Lake at Sunset. Did you encounter that as a young pianist? Oh no! Where oh, did no. where did that come from in your um, growth as a teacher? That's an interesting question, and the farthest back that I can go is that when 
when I was teaching pedagogy at, at Goshen College mm -hmm. in, in Indiana, I had the responsibility of teaching in our in our prep department the the, the beginning students. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was really very important for every assignment to have a you the composer element to that. Yeah. And we worked that into music pathways also. Uh, but um, for students to express themselves through their own compositions. And I've learned a couple of things about that. Uh, uh, you can't just uh, tell a student, go home and make up a piece. You know, right. Students have to have parameters like use major thirds and make that sound like a lake at evening mm -hmm. or something like that and have them experiment with that. And then also, uh, as I give that assignment, to give some illustrations about how that piece might sound. Oh, your piece could do this. Maybe you'd want to focus on major thirds up high on the keyboard, you know, or something like that. Or, or how about uh, working with major thirds on black keys in the left hand, major thirds on white keys in the right hand, and show that wonderful relationship. Just give them illustrations. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting, right? Because I think there are a lot of teachers, myself included, that did not have that kind of creative background in their well, study. Well, neither did I. Right? Neither did I. Um, but we grow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I've seen even how in the past you've incorporated that even with the older students, you know, imitating yeah. a style of another composer. Yeah, yeah. Or, um, you know, yeah. taking that even further. Yeah, yeah. 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 So what do you think that a personal creativity does to connect back to your goal of sound? development if I create a piece called the lake at evening mm -hmm. and I get really involved with the sound of major thirds and mm -hmm. stuff I'm opening myself to a response to Dennis Alexander's piece right. called the lake at evening that uses major thirds mm -hmm. you know, in other words my composition is an avenue to appreciating a composer's work someone yeah. else's ideas. yeah yeah I want to go to some of the kind of bigger, more summative questions that I have here. <laughs> I so, thought those were big ones. <laughs> yeah. So what do, what inspires your work? Period. Period. Or, or question. Mark. Question. Mark. What inspired your work? Yeah. What inspires your work? It is the personal relationship. I yeah. mean, I I just cannot get away from that. I love my students, and I want to do well by them. Yes. And uh, I, 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 I think that's it. Uh, I love the music, and I want to share that with them, but I love the students. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I've witnessed in your teaching how you really are able to connect with really every age of learner. I try. You know, yeah. and... Um, I still very much enjoy seeing you work with the young ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you have such a way of connecting with them. It's uh, thank you for saying that because I, I'm I'm not particularly aware of that. But I sometimes, when I'm teaching, I just almost want to stop and say a prayer of gratitude that I have the opportunity to deal for a, a few years with this beautiful young human being. I hope I never lose my appreciation for the uniqueness of each of my students. Mm -hmm. 
And I hope I never lose my respect for who that person is and what that person is will become. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just sort of in awe that I have the opportunity, the privilege of dealing with this young human mm-hmm. being for a few years in their life because it's just, it's, it's a privilege. It's a privilege that I can impact in my own meager way uh, the life of, of, this, of this young mm-hmm. person. Yeah. It's kind of a sacred opportunity. Mm-hmm. I, I have infinite respect for the potential of that student that's sitting across from me right. on that piano bench. And they may not be a very good pianist, but they're a beautiful human being. Mm. And if I can contribute to their growth uh, as a human being, mm-hmm. my life has been well spent and rewarded. End of discussion. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I know in your career and also in mine, working with teachers and yeah, future yeah. teachers yeah. is part of that. So yeah. how would you answer that question about working with teachers and helping educate teachers? Well, again, that's a, kind of a safe, sacred opportunity mm-hmm. and, and obligation. Um, I'm so proud of the fact that a great majority of the students that I have had in in pedagogy classes mm-hmm. are now fine t- piano teachers. Yeah. yeah, and I just think life well spent. You yeah. have trained teachers who are carrying. The, the message on of the importance of making music at the piano. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, teaching pedagogy is, again, um, a big responsibility, but what an opportunity mm-hmm. to train the next generation of piano teachers. Mm-hmm. I come, I, I, I have had this overwhelming feeling for the last several NTKPs that I've, that I've come to. Um, there was a time where I was kind of concerned about pedagogy programs in the in the country, and whether or not we were producing good students and things, things uh, and and the future of piano teaching in America. And I come to the NCKP, and I see these young people who are just on fire about teaching piano, and I think, no need to worry. The pedagogy programs across the country are producing people who are really interested in teaching piano. And I say, you can pass away and, 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 uh, and, and rest assured that piano training is in good hands in America. Look all around you. Look at these fine young people who are on fire about teaching piano well. So I, I really think that the future of pedagogy is in, in, in great hands, mm-hmm. or the future of piano teaching in America. And basically, that is because our pedagogy programs in America are very effective. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was growing up, you couldn't find many piano pedagogy programs. There might be a required course here or there, but pedagogy majors, forget it, mm-hmm. they, they just didn't exist. And look at now, practically every, every university, every, every school has uh, pedagogy majors or, or pedagogy offerings. 
And that is the reason why uh, there's so, so many good young teachers. Yeah. So how does piano inspire you? Oh, come on, Sarah. <laughs> piano has inspired me since I was six years old. And piano continues to inspire me. <laughs> Do you want to know what inspires me right now? Absolutely. I'm 88 years old, yes. and I'm already practicing on my 90th birthday recital. I <laughs> desperately want to live until I'm 90 years old, and on that recital, on that, on, on that particular day or around that time, I want to play a kind of a farewell recital. Or maybe not farewell. <laughs> not a farewell. <laughs> but I want to play a recital. Yeah. I got the repertoire all picked out, you know, <laughs> and I'm practicing. Yeah. I'm practicing on my 90th birthday recital. That is an inspiration. Well, it's a personal project. I don't, yeah. I, it doesn't have to no, be. No, it is. Yeah. It is. No, when, I just. When do you practice? Whenever I can. I practice every day. I practice every day. Uh, there are times uh, I have breaks over at the new school, and I, I never sit out in the kitchen and drink a cup of coffee. I practice. Mm -hmm. And I practice at home. This You'll laugh at this. When I was a, a kid in, in junior high school, uh, we had a, almost a little club of Fern uh, admirers. Fern was my our home. Mm -hmm. And she had a whole bunch of kids, you know, studying with her. And we would gather uh, in, in junior high and say, what are you studying on? What are you getting ready for the guild auditions? And I will never forget Marilyn one time said, you know, I just love lessons with Fern. I just think Fern's wonderful. She said, I always try to show up for a lesson with Fern. Do you know this story? About five minutes late. And I was just horrified. I couldn't imagine that anybody why? would yeah. show up late for a lesson with Fern. I said, Marilyn, why in the world would you show up late for a lesson with Fern? I said, oh, because I know that if I'm a few minutes late for a lesson with Fern, She'll be practicing. And I just love to hear Fern play the piano. Mm -hmm. To this day, I will never allow the first student of an afternoon who comes for a lesson to arrive at the lesson without my being at the piano practicing. I want them to know that Marvin practices and Marvin plays the piano. Uh, so every time there's a break and I have a, a few minutes before an, another student comes, I will sit and practice. I'll. I'll even run to the piano to, to get that message across. Marvin plays the piano. I just think it's really an important message. Uh, I'll never forget that. I, I arrive at, at my lessons with Fern five minutes late because she will be playing the piano, and I love to hear Fern play the piano. I want my students to say, I love to hear Marvin play the piano. Marvin, I'm afraid we are out of time. Oh. <laughs> I want to thank you for participating in today's interview. It has been my pleasure, Sarah. It has been an honor yeah. and a delight. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Francis Clark Center is a not-for-profit educational organization that serves the advancement of piano teaching, learning, and performing. Divisions include Piano Magazine, Piano Inspires Kids, Journal for Piano Research, National Conference on Keyboard Pedagogy, 
the New School for Music Study, Piano Education Press, International Online Teacher Education, and Piano Inspires Online Community Hub. Please visit us at pianoinspires.com to learn more about our impactful work and inspiring community.